1: Welcome to this SL Man podcast, in which some of the biggest names in business, fitness, fashion and more tell us about their careers, their style, their routines, their mental health and much more. Welcome to the SL Man podcast with me, Charlotte Collins. This week, I'm joined by Heather Steele and Ryan Chettyawadana. Mr. Lion, as he's otherwise known, is at the forefront of innovation within the drinks industry and has been involved in opening several of the UK's best bars for over a decade, as well as launching in the US and Amsterdam. It all began with his first bar, White Lion, in Hoxton in 2013 bar was voted world's best new international bar in 2014 at Tales of the Cocktail and was included in the world's 50 best bars list in 2014 and 2015. He has since been named UK Bartender of the Year twice and in 2015 was named International Bartender of the Year at Tales of the Cocktail. Most recently, Ryan opened a cool new space, Seed Library and 100 Shoreditch Hotel in March, 2022, where the drinks are focused around the heritage of certain cocktails. I'm sorry, Ryan, I'm nearly done. As well as bars, the Mr. Lime brand includes a retail range of five bottled cocktails available to buy from self. And master of malt. Welcome. Thank you. That is quite a CV you've got there. It's a, it's a lengthy
2: <laughs> bit that you've included. It's very nice um, to hear some of those bits back. <laughs> yes, remembering <laughs> those heavy days of 2013.
1: Can you give us a bit of background? How does one become best bartender in the UK? Oof.
2: Well, I mean, that's a specific point that was, I suppose, much later in the career, actually. I think the journey into that, I always talk about the fact that for most people in food and drink, it's a bit of a roller coaster and you end up kind of falling into the industry. Um, and it was no different for me. I didn't really intend on being in food and drink. It was something I loved. I'd grown up around food a lot, and I actually trained as a chef. But I was originally, I was coming down to London, I was going to art college, and I kind of got bitten by the idea of being in the industry. You know, it was something I did while I was just trying to fund studies, but it was really infectious. It felt something that, you know, could be an output for my interest in both arts and sciences, because I went on from studying fine art to do biology and then I did philosophy and I jumped around you know it was just the constant output of not only being able to to kind of work with amazing people and hear amazing stories but I got to be creative and I got to apply the kind of same rigor and thinking that I wanted to do from kind of my science world so I ended up just loving the food and drink kind of side of things I worked in a ton of different styles of venues so everything from kind of fine dining through to nightclubs and I just tried to pick up little bits about it that I I thought were really interesting and then eventually started doing things like the competitions which to me were almost like a art brief you got given a topic you got given a particular area that a brand would want to to kind of explore or or a certain kind of magazine was doing as part of their their kind of competition and it was a wonderful way to kind of express myself, and I loved that side of the creativity. And I thought it was a lovely way of being able to to kind of learn, and obviously then promote the bits that I found interesting from the world of food and drink. So started doing some of the kind of bartender competitions, and that eventually led me on to to kind of focusing a little bit more in the industry. And it's kind of spiraled from there.
0: So
1: explain a bit more about what a bartender competition looks like. Understood so you get a brief, and then yeah. and then what? You just go away and make something.
2: Yeah. I mean, some of them have quite tight briefs and they'll give you kind of specific criteria about how much you have to use of a brand or this is the style of drink we're looking at. But often they used to be simple, like, you know, the topic is around lost and found ingredients or things from a certain region or just something like the idea of preservation. You know, sometimes they would kind of give you a little bit of a direction, but ultimately was kind of going, do whatever you want around this topic. And they judge you on things like your technique, your speed, your kind of storytelling but ultimately it was about how can you bring something to life you know that was great for me that was something I loved doing you got to be very kind of lateral in your thinking I think that was the bits around it that I really loved the the, the kind of storytelling side and actually that's something that we've really pushed within the bars now is going how do we kind of find an idea that will be interesting to a wider group of people and use that as a way of connecting them to a sense of taste or, or discovering a new side of something when they go to kind of engage with it or drink it so the competitions were really fun
1: can you remember like you know this is oh. a brief and i made x
2: well actually one of my favorite ones was the first time i won uk bartender of the year there was a kind of a global stage it was the first time they then took each of the the kind of national winners onto a, a kind of bigger i suppose competition and they tried to look at different sides they would test your your speed your creativity there would be different knowledge rounds but one of the fun bits was a market challenge and it was simply going around, being able to, to kind of pick up things from the market and what interested you from this this kind of wonderful array of produce. And I was being judged by the Japanese judge who then went on to be an amazing mentor of mine, a gentleman called Ueno-san. And it was really fun looking at all these things and going, well, how can I tell the story? It was in London, which is a bit of a shame. I was based in Scotland at the time and could have been in a far-flung place oh, anywhere in the world it's classic
3: and... isn't it you could be anywhere but right. no you could
2: yeah. actually all the subsequent <laughs> versions of that competition ended up in places like Rio yeah. or you know <laughs> in Mexico People City in London, and London. <laughs> but it's still wonderful and then. also and at
1: least you know the produce maybe like I mean, it's home uh, turf can there,
2: there was that degree mm. yes I mean that was probably the only home, <laughs> <okay>. home <laughs> advantage but yeah, it
3: sounds like an apprentice challenge right? Yeah. I go out and buy an ingredient what
2: fun <laughs> and, and we did we couldn't have friends attend or anything yeah. so none of it or bring our own materials. so yeah there wasn't really much home advantage but it was nice being able to be familiar with some of the ingredients and that's precisely what I lent into is going how do I tell the story of what a British food market is about Mm -hmm. and everything from the kind of grains that would get made into bread and drew an analogy with with what was happening with whiskey at the time and used some of the things that were kind of native to Scotland but also some unexpected ingredients going in the mix you know great butter that was from surrounding areas and you know a bit being able to bring this to life for a drink. And I remember it, you know, I won that round and a winner's son kind of came to me. He was like, I'd never tasted anything like that, which is wonderful. Obviously you want it to be delicious, but hearing him kind of talk about the fact that it was the connection of the story. And and that was the bit that I always wanted to to kind of do in food and drink. And it wasn't very prevalent at the time. So being able to to kind of see that recognized and also then take that bit of the trophy home mm. was, was lovely. There are some fond memories of it, but sometimes they would be, very vague as a kind of competition briefer going yeah make, make us a, a daiquiri and, and that was it that sounds quite fun <laughs> yeah you can make them quite entertaining yeah which I is
1: great. where were you working at the time like when that when that began when you started to kind of take off and win these competitions
2: so when I first started doing competitions it was when I was up at a bar called Bramberlands in Edinburgh so I was up in Scotland I was also finishing my master's so it was this difficult thing of going and working full-time at uni and kind of working full-time at night and trying to get down to London and do some of these competitions but it was lovely for me. It was Mm -hmm. a a great way of bringing some of my interests and studies out into work. And, you know, there was a really exciting kind of like duality of being in in university and trying to do all this stuff. But I kind of knew I was going to be, you know, finishing my studies and going into the food and drink Mm -hmm. world.
1: Why did you pursue drinks as opposed to food?
2: I always feel tough talking about this one because I feel like I'm going to offend lots of chef pals by (laughs) saying this, but I just found the kitchen really alien. Mm. It didn't seem to me like real life. You know, when you're at home and you're cooking for people, you can tailor things and you know what your friends love. You know, the things that you love and you want to kind of, I suppose, create for them. And being in a kitchen, I was so removed. I didn't get a chance to talk to people. I didn't get to interact or tailor things. And it was actually my oldest friend. who kind of flippantly went, well, if you want to work with flavors, but you want to talk to people, just go work in a bar. Mm. And it was a bit of a light kind of bold moment for me where it was kind of going, actually... That's exactly what I want to do. <laughs> I still want to work with all of these amazing kind of producers and connect those stories. And I think there is something wonderful about, you know, hosting people and being able to do that, because I think it is a great kind of, I, I suppose, medium for, for storytelling. But it's so much nicer being able to interact and be at the forefront of that. And mm. I think there's something kind of particularly lovely about not having the the kind of confines of the table. You know, a restaurant or a, a meal has a certain kind of meter to it you behave in a certain way you interact in a certain way whereas you're unshackled a bit in a bar in that way you can you can change people's moods you can cater different audiences you can look at different occasions for people and that was very exciting for me I I, I always preferred the kind of wideness of it rather than I'm going to create something then you're going to eat it and it's going to conjure the idea of a main course in your mind or whatever that might be.
1: I've never thought about that how yeah. removed you are. You know so many chefs come to us and say oh you know I've always just loved to feed people and I love it and, but it's so true but you just then get shoved in the kitchen and you don't really
2: do that do you? Yeah
3: because even if you're, it's a sort of chef's table thing you've still got to make However many portions yeah. of whatever sort of one is what thing it is. You're cooking. Mm.
2: But I do think that's the reason why a lot of kitchens have opened. Yeah. You know, people do kind of feel a little bit of that mm. loneliness yeah. and
3: want to you see don't who get to And
2: exactly that. From mm. from a guest side, you you know, there's something lovely about being able to watch people mm. create.
1: Yeah. I want to ask you about kind of the rest of your journey and how that came about, but you were just talking about the flavours and the ingredients and kind of taking those foodie elements and applying them to, to drinks. And is that part of the reason behind your success? Or were you one of the first people to do that? I suppose I'm asking you to paint a picture of <laughs> the bar landscape yeah. before you entered it.
2: When I was started a line company about 10 years ago, it was very much trying to to kind of go against the grain. And I think, you know, there was wonderful bars around the world. You'd go to a neighborhood bar, you'd go to a celebrated cocktail bar, there would be kind of great little things that tapped into the rituals of drinking, but they were largely the same thing. They would use the same ingredients, they'd use the same means of production, you know, if you weren't in the know around cocktails, you wouldn't get really any of the story in a way that felt inclusive. You know, you might get the history of a Manhattan or this beer comes from this region and that's why we're serving it. And that to me felt so opaque. And I think particularly because, you know, a lot of the the kind of traveling or the the way that I would kind of go visit bars and restaurants would be my sisters and they weren't part of the trade. And I would just see them bored or lectured and kind of go, well, food and drink shouldn't be like this. It should be exciting. There's so many amazing stories. Why aren't we demonstrating the breadth of things? And so I think, yes, it was partly kind of bringing some of that culinary influence of where do we source ingredients from? What are the type of ingredients that we can kind of put at the forefront? But it was actually the, the, the kind of connection to it is going, you know, this is interesting and hopefully it'll be interesting to you because rather than being, I suppose, a little bit lecturing of going you should enjoy this and you should respect this cocktail because it was created in 1920 <laughs> and it came from here and all the bits that nobody actually mm. cares about. I think that was a very big different thing about, you know, what excited me about pushing the industry a bit is going, what is our scope for looking after people? Where Who do we invite in? How do we entertain them? You know, where are the boundaries in which we can start to, to kind of explore flavour? And that also means different environments. It doesn't need to be the very i suppose hushed tones of a traditional cocktail bar. You know, I'm very glad to see that we were we were part of a change that kind of ushered in a new new approach to drinks and brought a lot of the fun to the table. Mm.
1: So that was the change. We listed off all the various bars that you've you've owned at the beginning. How did they come about? You know, what took the leap from working for others to working for
2: yourself? Well, I think having, you know, run very different styles of venues for people. I kind of ended up, you know, I think naturally people are a bit of magpies. They take bits that they love and they fold that into their own character. And you also learn about the bits that you don't want to champion or or, or kind of endorse. And, you know, the food and drink industry, just like any other, has got so many different <laughs> difficulties around it. And so I kind of knew that there was space to do something different. And I'd spoken with my, my sisters and my cousins about it. You know, we all love the world of food and drink. Why can't we create something that that showcases a different side and caters to a different audience than currently it does. That's where kind of White Lion came from. I suppose it was a bit of a challenge to the, to the food and drink world. There was a couple of things within it I think people saw it as a little bit more of a pointy challenge. We didn't actually mean to upset people the way that it did. <laughs> was it Was
1: not as provocative as you meant yeah. It? yeah. I mean, we
2: certainly did want to kind of encourage this idea of looking at things differently. The ingredients we use, the idea of sustainability, the professionalism of, you know, what is it to be in the world of hospitality? And to me, it was about helping people have a good time rather than creating a temple to the cocktail. Not only was it the starting point for the company, it was, I suppose, the blueprint of what we wanted to do. It was that that allowed us to... You know, create dandelion. And that was such a different beast. It was in, you know, a five-star hotel. It was very glamorous and you know, complete contrast to the kind of deepest, darkest East London project <laughs> that we'd had before. And then obviously we tried to employ the same ideas throughout all the venues. As going, how do we challenge something? How do we look at something differently? But how do we encourage a positive conversation? These those are the things that we wanted to, to look at. And you know, I think at first they were seen as a little bit heretic or they were seen as pushing people or making them feel uncomfortable. And, and, and that wasn't the intent. It was to try and encourage a a different way of looking at things, but as it started to get better recognition and, and I suppose it didn't hurt, you know, when it all of a sudden it wins world's best bar, it's, it's something that people then kind of take stock of and go, okay, the idea of sustainability doesn't need to be so weird and niche. And these guys are just doing something odd or, you know, using these other styles of ingredient or shining a light on, different knowledge sets, different parts of the world, or or encouraging interactions with, with other industries, you know, that maybe isn't such a, you know, bad thing. But I think it also was the point where we started to, you know, really develop as a team and find ways of of working as a group. And I, you know, at that point we were hitting a hundred members of, of the team and, you know, everybody was involved in this creative process. And I think that became quite kind of enticing to people. The idea that you weren't just a worker in a system you were taking ownership of it and you could be part of something could have real conc- creative steer on and i think that was the thing that really helped kind of spread the idea much wider and that was the bit that we were really kind of mm-hmm. excited encouraged to see kind of gain momentum
1: mm, that's the fun bit let's talk about drinks themselves yeah. but i keep wanting to say booze i feel like that's what a you that say, does it it's it's booze it's booze. Booze. I'm it I'm does it, it yeah. though, doesn't it do you remember your first drink
2: Legal drink?
3: Yeah. No, you can no do it. You know,
1: little... I want to know you had a Lambrini in yeah, the park. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah,
2: I mean, growing up in Birmingham, it wasn't, <laughs> I suppose, a very sheltered situation. <laughs> but I think, you know, there were certain bits where we were going out to gigs and we were very fortunate to, to not be too restricted. You know, it was a big city. We were able to, to get out, see live music. And I think some of the first exposure was terrible tinnies of beer in a very dark, sweaty club somewhere. But it was also kind of like magical for that mm. because I still love those kind of like experiences and it was kind of perfect. It just got passed around the crowd, which is now really gross to kind of reflect on. <laughs> Post-COVID, yeah. Totally. Crazy. But I think that was probably the first time I'd kind of had mm. a drink. Some really old friends and I, we'd kind of, from kind of robbing bottles of whiskey from our parents' stash, kind of had developed a, a taste for whiskey. So whiskey and beer were probably the... Kind of first go-to's, but again, like most, when we were going out, it was not in any sort of sophisticated manner yeah. that we were <laughs> kind of having delicious mixed drinks.
1: I think it's more sophisticated than the blue WKDs. Oh, I'd say yeah, <laughs> whiskeys. Oh, well, a... hooch! For well,
2: me, what's that? Oh, hooch for sure. I yeah, definitely do you remember. It yeah. had
3: like a, a face of a lemon looking. Oh yeah, yeah. On, but yeah, basically sugar f- and not much yeah. booze really. I remember but...
1: snake bites from university oh, as well, yeah. which is. What is that? I think it's like cider and cider Ribena. And, is yeah. That right? Yeah. Yeah. Cider and Black. I know. Yeah. I'm sorry for bringing that up in front no? of you. <laughs> no. It's quite fun.
2: We've, um, you know, over the years, you, you kind of tap into some of cool. the nostalgia, yeah. right? Because it's it's very shared. True. Um, and...
1: Nostalgic. Like, yeah. I t- yeah. I mean, I heard that Shirley Temple, not not they're obviously not alcoholic, yeah. but Shirley Temple's made a big comeback. Was yeah, that last back, year? It was a big yeah. trend. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: And there was a point where I think a load of bartenders were... We're trying to recreate things like breezes and yeah, smell yeah. off ice yeah, yeah, because yeah. that's what every and yeah. going, well, surely this could be delicious as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, think are, yeah. I think it cannot. <laughs> I'm not sure they're right. Arches and <laughs>
1: lemonade. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. What about drinking now? What do you like? What do you drink in your own time, in your downtime?
2: I think it varies. I think the thing I love the most when I'm out is is kind of diving into, I suppose, the venue and, and people's passion. There's only a couple of things that I don't really eat or drink. So what do you not drink? I'm terrible with chili. I'm a total okay. wuss. Not a pante <laughs> <So>, guy. <laughs> no, it's pathetic how mm. much I can't stray into <laughs> that. So anything that's got chili in it, I don't drink coffee. And there's certain things that I don't really care for. I don't really like very grassy rums. You know, it's like with a restaurant, you kind of go, well, what do you recommend? Mm. What are the bits that you love? Mm. What reflects your space and your your creativity best? So I think those are probably the main guides. Mm. is the spirit I go to the most. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's the thing that I... I love mixing with and I love the variety within it I don't drink a ton of beer I drink Guinness if I drink beer <laughs> and then I'll drink wine when we're kind of at a restaurant or probably when we're at home mm. Annabelle and I probably drink wine more than anything else I'm very unfussy when it comes to that I think a lot of people think that especially when I've traveled and I've visited a place people are you know nervous about going oh are you going to be really kind of particular about mm. something and honestly, it's, it's not the case. Of course, when I'm doing it in a critical sense, if it's for work, if it's our own teams, I'm hypercritical of it. But, you know, if I'm judging something, that's a different thing. But ultimately, you want to get swept up in, in where you are. Mm. And if that's a, you know, a super sweet, slushy margarita on the beach, perfect. <laughs> you know, that's going to be great compared to like a ultra finesse martini at a, at a bar. Like it's, it's got to fit the context. And then I'm easily sold.
1: Do you have a a kind of a broad moment in mind? I don't want to say the best drink you've ever had, because as you say, it's context related, but is there a, you know, a time, a moment, a drink that you just go back to time and again?
2: Yes. And I I often say this because I use it as an example and it does kind of fix an occasion so I apologize. But I say to the team a lot, one of life's perfect moments is having a martini with a loved one ahead of dinner. And the pause it gives, the way that it sets up your palate, there is something about it as a drink that feels timeless and it just grounds you it just causes you to like slow down it's magic mm. and i think there's something very powerful in that as an idea and one of our old business partners one of my oldest friends was was over from the states recently we had a martini together and it was just again you know it doesn't it, it morphs depending on who you're with and where you are but it just can become one of those like truly sublime moments mm. um so like i always go back to the martini
3: how do you like your martinis
2: I'm kind of greedy. I'm like it's extra <laughs> everything, so um, I tend to have it either a dry vodka martini or a wetter gin martini with a twist and olive nice. and orange bitters, absinthe, whatever. Yeah. I can you I really can <laughs> layer of, it up.
1: <laughs> where does your best martini in London? Oh,
2: that's a really <laughs> tough one. I mean, the Connaught Martini is pretty spectacular, and I think you know the idea of. Being able to build into ceremony is kind of really wonderful mm-hmm. around that. So Alex's business partner and I will often—I mean, his wife's the the bar manager there, so oh, well that, that also helps. helps. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, there's there's certain bits where we've had a really kind of like long period of time where we're traveling too much, and being able to to kind of share a martini there is is always very very special. But I'm very loath to say our own bars for this, but I think it's one of those. Drinks that I think people are often very, you know, yes, you can vary it in a million different ways, all of your different garnishes and ratios and brands. But I, I, I often think people are kind of scared. Of- Hold
0: up.
2: doing too much of a twist on it because mm. they feel like they'll, they'll bastardize it too much or deter from the, the classic. But I think over the years, the bars have done very sensitive versions of of the martini. And it's one that now, because they're owning the creative process, I can wax lyrical yeah. and, and feel like it's <laughs> celebrating something that is very much their own. I really love going into the bars and, you know, having a martini made by the team.
3: Have you got a martini on a seed library?
2: Yeah, seed probably changes quite re- regularly. Lioness's menu is... Is kind of like a bigger behemoth that yeah. kind of builds up. But see, so variously, they've got one going on at the moment that's super interesting. It's kind of layering different spirits. So it's a gin and vodka martini, but it also uses this spirit that doesn't fit in another category from, from our pals over at Empirical in Copenhagen. And it's kind of green and creamy and aromatic. And it's just the right kind of layering where, it, again, it doesn't feel like it's separating itself from the the kind of beautiful simplicity of, of the classic but it's just a really wonderful take on the drink. Oh, nice. uh, so the Soka one at C is really lovely at the moment. I
3: feel like I might have had like a coriander seed martini. Oh yeah. It was so good. That's that's a... Is that gone?
2: No, okay, that's that I suppose it's <laughs> become a bit of a, a staple of the yeah. bar because it's again it's a, a beautiful simplicity, mm. it's gin and coriander seeds. Yeah, it was, <laughs>
3: um... it was for any listeners, it's genuinely sensational. Oh, really do that. I'll
2: yeah, it's it. a bit of a fave for us yeah. as well. I think even if it's not on the menu, we'll always have that one stashed away because it was sort of the first drinks that got created for the bar. It sums up what we're trying to do there very neatly. Great.
1: Can I ask you about other spirits? Martini's yeah. aside, what do you like to do with... Maybe it changes. Maybe it's right now. What do you yeah. like to do with vodka, with gin, with tequila? What are you enjoying at the moment?
2: Vodka to me is is one that I actually stay very close to the, the spirit. I think I'm a, I'm a fan of... The kind of historic side of vodka you know the particularly the ones that aren't sweetened or kind of like too adulterated and I just want to celebrate you do like spirit. a toffee
1: vodka shot then <laughs> it's not my go-to um cool, although
2: <laughs> I, I mean I definitely have a sweet tooth so <laughs> okay. anything like that's kind dessert. of yeah, exactly <laughs> but when it's kind of trying to look at vodka it's I tend to you know I, I was very fortunate being in Poland drinking a ton of vodka as part of celebrations and I suppose understanding how it kind of fits in the culture in that way and Mm. kind of really developing a love for that Mm. so playing with temperature and dilution and I suppose things around it whilst keeping the vodka quite kind of clean
1: what brand in particular are you, are you uh, into at the moment?
2: Polish vodkas to me are, are, are my go-to. Belvedere has been my go-to because I love rye as a, as a vodka, but there's a load of new ones coming out. I, I think potato vodkas are incredible. Mm. Whenever you see a, a version of that, I think it's worth seeking out. I mean, there's one from the UK called Black Cow that's made from whey. So it's the the kind of milk leftovers of making cheese. <sighs> as you'd expect, it's not kind of, sour in any sort of way but it's got this wonderful kind of creaminess to it you know anything that plays to that weight and texture is you know wonderful it's a it's a great go-to so we need to try that
1: um gin
2: gin i i do love a martini so i'd probably go towards that but i think the the beauty of gin is you can almost show off different sides of it depending on you know what you need to to have in that situation You know, there's a reason why a gin and tonic is, you know, the world's most drunk cocktail because it, I suppose you get all the layers as you you drink through it. But, you know, citrusy style, I love it when there's kind of, you know, grapefruits or herbs in season, just accenting a sour with, Mm. with something simple as that. But I also love it kind of opened up in i suppose in a similar fashion to a gin and tonic using things like sparkling wines as the the kind of lengthener a french 75 is also my wife's favorite yeah, no. cocktail but <laughs> you know it's one of those drinks where gin almost morphs it helps kind of tee up the champagne it works wonderfully with the lemon and it almost kind of helps as this kind of wonderful bridge in the center of the cocktail and i think that's where gin gets really powerful in your kind of home or kind of bar mixing kind of catalog because mm-hmm. it can kind of take on different characters depending on what surrounds it and brands? Beef Eater is my go-to because I think Pound for Pound is mm. one of the best bottles in the world. It's kind of incredible mm. that it's got the right ABV, it's got the right kind of balance to it. It's, it's kind of a wonderful go-to. I love Porters. There's a new brand from the UK called Hepple that's really great. It's got a lovely kind of kind of greener brightness to it. There's a wonderful one from the Cotswold called Garden Swift that's made by one of my favourite distillers and it's kind of baffling because it shouldn't make sense. So I think it's something like 34 botanicals. And when I heard about it, I was really dubious because that just doesn't seem like it's going to fit in harmony. But Barney is an incredibly skilled distiller and it's wonderful. And it's one of the few gins that I would almost think, you know, one of my old mentors was used to say, you don't drink gin neat to kind of understand it. It's like trying eggs to work out how to make an omelette. Mm-hmm. I don't wholly agree with it, but I think on a whole, you don't really just drink neat gin. No um and what
1: why do you think that is like why is it so different to vodka and tequila in that way i think
2: because the the, the kind of botanicals and the aromatics are there to to kind of latch on to other mm. things and they they can be a little too punchy just by itself i
1: mean yeah i think but we, yeah, we just all just know just that it sounds tongue, tongue, yeah it? but it's kind of like yeah i'm yeah. just interested as in the real reason but yes that makes yeah I, sense, I, think.
2: I remember lots of friends being like it just tastes like toilet cleaner yeah. Yeah. Yeah, groom. because groom. they tried it at a party, yeah. poured some yeah. out, drunk at neat, Ooh. and gone, Ooh. never doing that again. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it just needs a bit of breathing room around it. And I know a martini is essentially just diluting it. That's where, you know, it just needs a little bit of kind of space around it. Mm-hmm. But and... actually, Garden Swift is one that you could you could have in a much more condensed way. Okay, interesting.
1: And my favourite subject, tequila.
2: <laughs> oh, tequila's a, a wonderful one. Actually, the first bar I ever worked in was a tequila bar. And it was really interesting back in Birmingham in 2002, trying to encourage people to, to kind of drink fine tequilas. You and not just slam
3: it back. Totally. <laughs> and,
2: you know, some of these things were so expensive because, you know, they were rare as hen's teeth to kind of bring across at that point. And it's lovely to see the number of brands and the, I suppose the recognition, because it is such a carefully crafted and well-maintained like maintained category. It's nice to see people kind of believing in it a little bit more widely. Mm-hmm. It's It was certainly a very small set of people mm-hmm. that would, uh, you know, jump into trying tequila things. But it's really nice to see it's much wider.
1: How do you like to mix it?
2: Citrus is, is a wonderful ally to tequila. And I think obviously the margarita is a lovely go-to. And I think there's a few variations in that family that are really great. There's a, a drink called a Toreador that uses apricot brandy instead of kind of an orange liqueur. And I, I think it just it works to build some of the stone fruit, almost savory notes out in a really lovely way. But even like drinking it just as a highball you know it yeah. works great very fond memories of, of drinking it in Mexico in various different ways and it being around food and I think again trying to think of it differently rather than kind of like a party spirit as something that actually is is a great food mm. kind of mm. companion is, is is a great way of, of exploring it but it's got a very distinct character so you will notice it in a drink but it also has a, a heap of versatility to it so it works with bittersweet style serves it works with citrus it can do it in a drier style cocktail Savory works wonderfully. So again, it depends on context, but it is actually quite a fave, fave spirit for me to, to go to.
3: And do you like mezcal as well?
2: I do, but I don't know the the kind of category as well. So I've gone from things where I'm like, wow, this is delicious to ones where I'm like, that's a little too challenging for me. <laughs> but I love the kind of history and sense of place around it is is incredible. So it's one of those ones where I respect a lot, but I don't always love.
1: What about tequila brands? I feel like that's a category mm. that has more new brands than, yeah. than ever.
2: Fortaleza, Siete Leguas, El Tesoro. Again, those were brands where for a period it was really hard to get hold of and they're becoming much more prevalent now. But, you know, even things like, you know, there Patron, there is great brands, you know, you can pick up in much wider contexts. I think the thing to look for is 100% agave tequila and then you're pretty golden. Mm. You know, you can taste the ones that might have something added to it. And if it's tasting a little too sweet, then it kind of takes the control away from you. You can't balance this as well. And, you know, it, it, it kind of adds this kind of artificial, quite heavy flavor on top. So I just try and stiff away from those kind of ones.
1: If somebody comes to you for supper, do you have a signature drink that you make guests?
2: This is where I practice what I preach quite a lot. It was funny because the books are very much just a reflection of what we do at home. The same kind of idea of thinking about the practicalities. And I've always said to friends, you know, you don't want to be stuck in the kitchen while all your friends are around the, the table mm. having dinner. You want to be kind of hanging out with them. So kind of play up to, to kind of what suits that situation. So I'll do a lot of batch drinks. One of the drinks from the first book is a drink called the Newt Negroni that became it was on the Masterclass series. And actually on both the book and the series, it was, I think, the one that people engage with the most, which was lovely because it just works. It's a really nice twist on a very simple drink. You can customize it. You can add in your own flavorings. But you essentially have a bottle on the table. You put glasses out and people can help themselves. And it just, it works wonderfully. What's the twist? It's microwaved with rosemary, blackberries and grapefruit peel. Wow. Okay. Which sounds, again, one of those ones where you're like, why would I stick my drink in the microwave? <laughs> and I think people always thought I was going to serve it hot. But it's it's essentially, it's a very quick way of getting a rapid infusion. So you take out some of those kind of lighter green herbal notes, you get a bit of the zest, you get a little plumpness from the blackberries, you strain it all out. And then you batch it and chill it, and you just pour that out, and it just integrates all the flavors in a very lovely way. And it it feels it feels very social. I don't yeah. really know why. Mm-hmm. It just it's the right kind of flavors to to kind of ease into conversation. You can just it's very easy to be able to to have ice and a bottle out, or I do something which is essentially that with fizz. So batch a base, and it's usually a, a cordial that's in season. Opened out. I love sherry. So something like a pheno sherry and probably gin. Mm-hmm. And then you know, you've know got acidity, you've got sweetness, you've got the gin as the the kind of, again, that lovely bridge point. And then just top, up, top it with bubbles. It's a very easy thing to, to kind of employ. And I think I've I've harked on about it for years because I'm just like, it really works. It's a great one to have at home. And, you know, you can just keep it in the fridge and none of my friends turn up at the same time. So <laughs> it's always kind of, I need to go get another glass yeah. for somebody and you can just pour it and top it.
1: Can we talk about the London food scene? Obviously a passion of yours. Yes. Where do you love? Where do you eat in London?
2: I mean, this is where we're spoiled. I <laughs> think this yeah. is the, the most exciting food and drink scene on the planet. And I think what's really lovely is you've got really important restaurants that are kind of like globally, you know, and I look at things like St. John and I include Silo as part of the new wave of that, that, you know, have cause such an incredible impact on the world and changing the way that people think around food. And then you just get the massive variance of stuff. And I think it's everything from some of my favorite chef's restaurants to to the stuff that is just part of the fabric of London that is more kind of like mom and pop places or or kind of um, cultural institution spots. It's very difficult to pick out kind of like singular ones. Black Axe Mangal is definitely a big fave. I love BB that Chet opened fairly recently. Mangal 2, blanking now. Mm-hmm. Always the way. Yeah, yes. I always you
1: restaurants. Asked, you do this, you I really just, blank I on yeah, like, yeah, I've gone
3: every restaurant in London that ever existed.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So where, do you, where do you go for a special meal? Where do you love? Where's like your biggest treat in London?
2: Oh, biggest treat. BB might be up there for that actually because I think it's somewhere where you can really kind of lean into the indulgence. But again, it depends who I'm with. You know, it, it, it's a very intimate space and it kind of suits you and one other.
1: What about <laughs> pubs? Do you like a pub?
2: I love a pub. I always joke to the team that it's kind of the ultimate place that I want to open. <laughs> yes, um, please do. <laughs> I, pubs I are my favourite thing have as have well. I'd
3: love you to have a pub. And I
2: think it's also, I, I always talk about pubs being kind of like the church for the non-religious. Hmm. It's a meeting point. They're pu- they're crucial to kind of community catch-ups. Hmm. Um, and they're just, you know, especially if you think about like some of the pubs that are in your local area, how much people congregate mm. at them, and they go for different occasions, and it—it's really informal. And mm. I think there's something magical about the way that a pub does that. And I spoke with my sister about this. Like the soundtrack is people, and there's something really incredible about mm. the fact that there's just the energy of the place is what is almost the whole point of being there. Mm. It's
1: also so uniquely British, isn't it? Absolutely.
2: Mm. Like you, it's a shame that they're they're a dying breed of I things. Know, yeah. mm. and being able to have one that we wouldn't turn like super fancy it would just try and like yeah cover the details about what a great pub should be and yeah being able to have Guinness on tap great <laughs> no, that's um,
3: the dream. I feel like now yeah. you can have cocktails in pubs it's like yeah. acceptable to have all those things behind the bar so it can still be and, a, a something that you would do pub. yeah totally naturally. and I think
2: you know if you go to places like the George or the yeah, Marksman yeah. where they've got great spirits mm. and they can serve this I remember you know it was as Cocktail started to become much more popular and, you know, you'd be able to get them in every kind of pub and restaurant. But sometimes you just... I remember going into a pub and this poor kind of, like, bar staff was trying to make a mojito and they hadn't been trained. And the main problem was it was just not set up for it. It was mm. a pub. They didn't... They were trying to crush ice Probably and pick mint. mint and, and, yeah. and I was like, this is a disaster. Mm-hmm. Like, absolutely, they can be part of the space. But, you know, have things that you can batch and pour out yeah. or have highballs, which are, like, you know, some of the... You know, ideal pub cocktails, Mm. like things that actually suit that setting and and that environment rather than kind of just going, well, cocktails are popular now. Let's force it through and Mm. try and make espresso martinis when there's no station set up. Or one Um, member
3: of staff and everyone wants a beer. Mm.
2: You lose out as a guest, you lose out as a a team member. But yeah, just being able to have some simple cocktails, some simple snacks and beer and dogs and people around. <laughs> yeah, <dream of> i <laughs> see it. Where are some
3: of your favourite pubs? Because you live out east, there are some great pubs.
2: Yeah, there are. There. There's some that have got like wonderful, like Spusto is is very close to me and, and the skull Head as well. But I am I always kind of hark back to, to kind of Scottish pubs because those to me have like a different kind of attention for mm-hmm. it. They just manage to blend the right amount of kind of humour, I'd say, is is kind of one of the key parts of it. They're very traditional a lot of ways, but there's something just about them that feels really social and playful. And that, that I suppose, a Scottish pub is, is the bit I'd love to be able to create in London.
3: Any good Edinburgh ones? Any? Because I'm going in a couple of weeks. Oh, and I, I know it quite you... well, but I'm just interested to see. What... So
2: Kay's Bar is probably one of the bars I would love to own most in the <laughs> world. Bow Bar, uh, Star Bar, Candyman's, oh, love- Sheep's Head. There is some, yeah, incredible ones to, to kind of seek out. And I hope they... Kind of managed to to kind of remain untouched. I'm confident the locals (laughs) will kind of keep those going. Any other
1: bars in the world that you'd love to own?
2: Oh, loads! There's a little sherry bar in Madrid called La Venencia, which is an ancient little bar, and there's a little cat and dog in there, and they've got these three barrels behind the bar, and they serve snacks, and it's just again, it gets packed because it's just it's almost like a pub. Mm -hmm. It's a great place to hang out. There's no pretensions around it. It's just what it is, and. The, the staff there are so wonderful they just look after you they scribble on your on the counter what you've had and yeah something like that where you just get to be part of a community that that would be really lovely
1: what's the coolest gadget you've got at home the thing that people Ooh. are always like well, what's that that's sick. for booze i mean yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, not yeah, just yeah. like <laughs> <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> T- it's strange because i tend not to to have a lot of gadgets mm. i'd say the thing that probably is the most wow i've got some very nice knives that i think people are often like oh shiny yeah. um <laughs> but kind of technology wise or piece of to kit i suppose yeah why do you
1: keep it simple maybe
2: i really do maybe that's you, i mean yeah. the the bars tend to do some kind of more complicated some hugely complicated yeah. <laughs> bits of production but again we tend not to rely on kind of technology for that it's more Actually, I think one of the things that I've always loved is going, well, how do we be as creative as possible with this restriction? Mm. And often it's just kitchen equipment.
1: Yeah. So where do you buy your knives?
2: They're either from Japan Mm -hmm. or from a guy called Tim who has Clement Knives, where he kind of repurposes materials either. It's a lot of it's plastic pulled from canals and waterways, things like NO2 canisters or bits of kind of old steel girders that he repurposes into the kind of the blades That's cool. Really cool. teams have various ones we've got one from Blenheim forge oh, uh, which chefs
3: are... love that don't they're, they? they're beautiful <laughs> yeah
2: there's lots of amazing yeah new knife brands that are around but mm-hmm. uh, again it goes from everything from like a big chef's knife through to little pairing sure. knives mm-hmm. and yeah it's a nice collection of the shiny things <laughs>
1: <laughs> what piece of kit do you think even if you're an amateur but what, yeah. what piece of kit that everybody should have in their home to make a really good drink
2: the most practical one, but it is quite boring, is a jigger. It's just a measure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I notice the difference for like even friends when they get a professional jigger. Because you can use an egg cup, you can use yeah. tablespoons. But the the kind of sharpness of the lip, how easy it is to kind of pour, you just end up kind of getting into the the kind of movements uh, in a lot more controlled manner. And, and that's what it's about. Well, as soon as you can control things, you can work out the bits that really make the difference to you. You know, what are the bits that you love as a flavor? How can you kind of control and, and highlight those more. That or a cocktail shaker. And again, I think people go for ones that look like the ones in the movies and um, often they're not that practical. A Boston shaker would classically be glass on one side. Yeah. And that's what I grew up with. Yeah. And the number of times we broke one. That's um... I like, find them stressful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I
3: agree. Just...
2: It's a lot of shaking with glass. They're and heavy. to tap yeah, heavy it as <laughs> well. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, so true. Do. Which... The point I was going to come to is the metal ones are great because they don't break, yeah. but they do take a little bit of mm. kind of time getting used to, to kind of cracking them yes. open. But the two part metal shakers, you can stir in it, mm. you can batch in it. They Again, they've got a very ergonomic lip. So pouring from them is very easy and they fit strainers. So that's probably the piece of kit where I'd say it makes the biggest difference to to kind of controlling and then being able to kind of refine your drinks.
1: Do you ever take a break from drinking?
2: Yeah, I do. Again, people expect you work in food and drink, you're just going to be inundated with it. And I think there's certainly a, I'm very lucky there's a lot of delicious things in the house if we ever want to go to it. But there's certainly periods where I'll go where there's a, there's a break and either doing little bits for charity as well, where you kind of can um, yeah give yourself a break and also kind of raise awareness around something mm. or, or champion something like I'm I'm a very like moderate drinker so it's 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 kind of in hand so I don't mm-hmm. feel the need to to kind of go I need to take a break from yeah. from drinking for too long.
1: Any hangover cures?
2: Well I'm very fortunate it's a bit of a family superpower that oh, we don't oh, get no. home. I know. <laughs> I know but I mean there's still points where I'm like I'm knackered mm, yeah. where I've been traveling and I'm just kind of like worn out so I'm like that's the same thing and I'm cup of tea is my go-to for things but I'm Bacon roll and Ribena, <laughs> probably okay, the ones nice. where I'm like. That's my kind of solution. Yeah. This can <laughs> solve anything. anything.
1: I much prefer talking to bar people than health people. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. yes. <laughs> much better answer. All right, Ryan, thank you so much. Absolutely. I need a drink. Yes. I don't know about I'd you guys? Like I'd like a drink. I'm ready. Um. All right. Well, to try it all for yourself, head to Seed Library at 100 Shoreditch or to Lioness. <laughs> as well i want to try that coriander oh it's yeah. Martin, good! You. okay um thank you so much
2: absolute pleasure thank you
1: thank you and thank you for listening if you have any feedback at all please do email podcast would we love hearing from you don't forget to rate review subscribe and tell your friends and we'll see you next time bye-bye
0: ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer